Welcome to the Teaching in Tech podcast with Alan and Chad. This podcast was developed with teachers in mind. We are glad to have you joining us on the podcast where we will dive into everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Our goal is to inspire passion in teachers by discussing strategies and activities that have been successful in the classroom, along with ways to integrate technology for maximum student engagement. In each episode, we want to look at things teachers are doing that are working, detailing teaching strategies and technology integration ideas. Also, special guests will join us to share their own strategies that have been successful with their learners. We are back for another episode of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad. Uh, the only difference being this week that due to uh, curriculum specialist obligations, Alan Brown will not be joining us, so I'm going to be flying this ship solo this week. Uh, very excited to have a special guest with us, Corey Niss, my former colleague at the STEAM Academy at Hartford and Canton City Schools will be joining us. And uh, he's going to be talking about some of the things that he's uh, done in the middle school classroom that have been successful. And uh, also we're going to be finding out a little bit more uh, about his path and how he got into education. So, uh, Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. Excited to be here. Excited to do this. One of the things that we typically start off with on an episode when we're interviewing a, a teacher is, in our profession, there's many, many different ways to get into education, many different paths that'll take you there. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit about how you got into the teaching profession. I got kids who always ask me that question, too. Um, it's kind of fun to think back how you get into education. I think the answer changes from year to year, but overall, I, I'm I'm a product of Canton City Schools, so with that, like, I had a lot of good teachers in Canton City. I, I always enjoyed going to school. I went to Schreiber grades one through six and Lehman for middle school, and then McKinley eventually graduated in 98, um, and I, I had so many amazing teachers that just, I enjoyed going to school, so that's the biggest thing. It was uh, the idea of legacy. The idea of you can influence and build a relationship with somebody on a personal level always interests me as that's the product. And um, I guess that's what really keeps me interested and intrigued with education. Uh, I always say, you know, a lot of people don't remember the person they got a car loan from, you know, if you're a banker. But a lot of people can go through and name every single teacher they've had, first through 12th grade yeah. or even their college professors. So Yeah, that's true. And one of the things that you bring up there is you talk about the idea of, of having good teachers. You know, you spend so much time during a, a given school year with your teachers that it really does give you that opportunity to kind of build those relationships. And then it's really kind of a nice thing in education when you come back as a teacher later yourself to have that experience with students and, and, um, and get that type of and get that type of relationship. You know, you and I have something in common in that I spent a lot of years teaching in, in my home district as well. And so there definitely is... There definitely is something special about being able to come and give back to a district that you came up through as a student and even sometimes you know in the early years work along with some of your former teachers too so so uh, right now as of this school year what do you teach right now i'm at steam eighth grade i'm doing american history um it's my third year now teaching american history i've taught it elsewhere but it's it's my passion i, I love i love teaching i teach basically a european exploration um, through Reconstruction of the Civil War. I love that period of time to teach the kids. And that's one thing I know that talking with students over the years that uh, when they look at the history content, 
especially at the middle school level, eighth grade history de definitely tends to stand out as far as concepts that they can relate to and they can connect with, especially compared to some of the early civilization and some of the stuff that they do in some of the other grades. Uh, it's definitely a, a nice tipping point just as far as being able to get the students engaged and get them involved. So uh, prior to coming to STEAM Academy, uh, where are some of the other stops that you've had along the way? Uh, biggest stop before Kansas City was uh, I was 11 years at a private school called Lawrence School. And it was served kids who had um, a lot of them were diagnosed learning disabilities, processing issues, ADHD, dyslexia, um, a lot of IEP uh, profile students, small class side. So I, I learned a lot of intervention strategies, though I'm not a special education teacher. I learned a lot of programs and, and intervention strategies there. And that was one of the things, like you said, being in your home district, I, was, I always thought as a private school cost a lot of money to go there. I always had an issue with that. And I wanted to bring good instruction. I wanted to be, bring unique and researched instruction to the public setting to help, you know, the home-based kids that I, I grew up. These kids are, you know, who I was. So I yeah. want to bring that back yeah. to them. Definitely have that relatability. And, and that's one thing I noticed in the years that I was uh, in this building at STEAM Academy is just that how many teachers there are that are very passionate about what they do and trying to provide every single day the best possible education that they can for the students. And uh, one of the things I think that really, uh, that really makes STEAM stand out. Um, you know, in addition to that, uh, I know that you've spent some time coaching as well, which really can be a big part of the learning process. Oh, it's, especially if you've got those athletes um, in your classes or you see them down the road. Um, great way to build a relationship. But, yeah, I coached football. I did wrestling for one year last year and uh, been coaching football in Canton City schools and then out whether it's middle school or high school, um, freshman level. And uh, those, those skills and those relationships you build with, with those kids, uh, definitely you can bring that into the classroom. And, and how you coach a kid, I mean, coaching is teaching, so – it's, it's yeah, definitely good coaching for sure. It's definitely is definitely teaching and definitely a an element of learning there. And the one thing too that I think there's really no substitute for is when you get good teachers who are also coaches. It really does a lot for your building, just in terms of the athletes and having that accountability, having an extra layer of motivation during the season, and that can really help those students to not only achieve athletically, but also to achieve during the school day and academically, because they've got an extra person there that they've got a connection with, and they're looking out. That per that coach is looking out for them uh, during the school day. And the way this sports culture now is, I mean, middle school and high school, like everything is more all year round so mm -hmm. like you're seeing these kids in the off season and you're building that relationship with them especially you know like with football you got them all summer before they even hit the classroom and if they're an incoming freshman you you, you get to know them pretty well and you get to see their tendencies and already build the, the relationship I mean be proactive and trying to help them with, with some issues mm -hmm. you know so definitely coach coaching is, is it's a lot of fun. I love I love that different aspect of walking away from the academic pressures and just building those relationships and having some fun with ball. Yeah, no doubt about that. So let's kind of shift a little bit and talk about uh, talk about your classroom. Uh, one of the things that always stood out to me, we worked across the hall from each other for a while, and one of the things that always stood out to me is just that uh, even in a middle school setting and, and even the time that we were um, – 
neighbors across the hall during the pandemic, which was really an upside down time for education, um, you always have a, a really relaxed and calm environment. So uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about setting that environment for learning and how important that is as far as getting things uh, going the direction you want in the classroom. Well, this is one of the biggest things you take from the coaching world, too, is you I tend to worry about what I have control over. So I can't control the individuals. What I can control is that the kids, they look forward to maybe walking through my doors because of how I treat them. And to me, that's the biggest thing, that, that respect and the energy that I bring. I have control over that on a day-to-day basis. And that kind of takes care of itself. And then I see you real and you for who you are, and it's genuine. So the fact that as soon as they walk through them doors, I, I want to greet them. I want to give them structure. That's the biggest thing. Structure and consistency every day. This is how it's going to be ran. They know what to expect. And sometimes that, that structure could be, okay, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, this is what we're doing, always, in some way, shape, or form, and Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's what we're doing. So Almost like a practice week. Exactly, like, like a practice schedule. And it's funny, here at STEAM, we do call each other coach mm-hmm. because um, for the reason that we all feel we're not just academically trying to teach them, but just in all shapes and form. And, I mean, even even the maintenance people here are coach, mm-hmm. are our lunch crew, you know, the, the ladies upstairs that take care of our kids for lunch, they're, they're coached. Every, so. Everybody's helping with that development. They're all, all part of the team. So. Yes, absolutely. So the, we're all in the same field, and we're all trying to build these kids the whole whole way up, not just academically. So, um, But that that um, that's that can be powerful, and I think that helps with, with relationships, you know. It's funny when the kid goes, coach, and five teachers turn around in the hallway here. So, like, you don't – it's just kind of what it is, and I think it's it's a great culture. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, too, when you talk about that because uh, for the, the three years I, I spent here at STEAM and now being at McKinley, I still in the hallway will hear, hey, coach, and I know it's going to be a STEAM kid when I turn around because I hung up the whistle a long time ago and I haven't, haven't coached basketball in a right. long, long time. So um, it's, definitely a, it's definitely kind of a bonding thing for, for all the STEAM community even when they leave the building and go on to the high school. So... Um, you know, the other thing, too, that I was thinking about that you mentioned that just kind of stuck with me a little bit, and I've had kids mention this to me as well, you know, just that daily greeting at the door. It's easy to get really busy and trying to be organized and, and, and that class change four or five minutes and making sure that everything's ready and perfect for that next class, but really taking that time just to greet each individual. I've had students that, you know, I had in middle school years ago, and they've said to me as maybe teenagers or even as adults later on down the road, Boy, we it just it was nice how every day you were at the door and just welcoming us as we came in, greeting us. And you don't think of that as being a huge thing when you get more focused on content and delivery and what your lesson going to be about. But just that that human contact and that um, just developing that that relationship right from the get go, it really does go a long way. With you bringing that up, I also I, it brings me back to years a couple years ago. I did a PD and it started out okay, this guy came in and he did this presentation. He's like, I want everybody on an index card to write down their top three things they remember from school. Everybody shared out, you know, we had all kinds of notes going. And then we categorized them. Almost everything that was categorized, I'd say 95% of it, everything was relationship-based, extracurricular-based, athletic-based, Very few items were academic, and if they were, it was because it was it was a project. Mm-hmm. So, which is what we try to do here at Steam. We right. try we're trying to incorporate problem project based learning as much as possible. 
Well, you know, as you, as you bring that up, my last couple of years at Fremont, when we became really, really heavy, uh, and this is in, in across education as a whole, not just specific to that district, but as we became more and more heavy on the, the constant assessment of kids, and some of my colleagues and I used to joke around about, boy, these kids are going to be coming back and saying, thank you for preparing me for that midterm assessment. I really appreciate right. the way that you got me ready for that <laughs> test. And as, as you mentioned, that's rarely, if ever, going to be the case. But yeah. I think about some of the kids who I've talked to as adults later that I had early in my career and still mentioning specific science labs that we did. Um, you talk about extracurriculars. If it's a sports team, all the time that you're spending together, even a club or another uh, after-school activity, you know, those are memories that last for a long time, and the relationships that are that are uh, built with those make a big difference. So it makes you think as a teacher, what are some ways that I can integrate that into an academic setting so that we're not only improving academically, but we have that relationship kind of foundation under it so yeah. we can be successful. And and one thing, too, that I, I, I'm learning is you go to plan a lesson, you think of it as a lesson, or we even refer to it as a coaching plan, but... Are you planning a lesson or are you planning an experience? Mm -hmm. If you view it as an experience, um, you tend to be more passionate, maybe have some better lead-ins, some hooks to get the attention, more hands-on, some better conversations, debates, more mm -hmm. critical thinking. But if it's just kind of like, okay, this bullet point, I'm following this bullet point. You Stick know, to the script, cover the standards. It, exactly. So um, if you plan an experience, just like you would a family vacation, Mm -hmm. You know, if you want a meaningful family vacation, it takes time to plan it. And like, oh, my kids would love to do this. Make sure you know? the details are right. Yeah. It, exactly. So, I mean, if you think of it as an experience, and that's kind of what um, the leadership here at STEAM is, is trying to get us to think more like that. And I, I, I love you in education like that. Like I said, I've always enjoyed education as a student, but as a teacher, I want to bring more experiences. Yeah, I'm thinking back to some of my early years in the science classroom, and one of the things that stood out to me at the middle school level is when kids would say, oh, we didn't do anything in there today. And usually those were the days that were notes heavy, uh, reading from the text heavy. Well, we didn't do anything in there today. So my goal was always early on as, as a young middle school teacher, how can I put together a lesson so they felt like we did something that day, where they had right. something meaningful enough that they could think back and say, okay, we did a lab that involved these things. And maybe they wouldn't initially think right to the objective or right to what the content was. But in the end, because they were so engaged in the activity, they would understand those concepts and they would remember the main things that you were trying to get them to learn and trying to teach them uh, in that process. And I think that type of mindset, as you're talking about, it really does go a long way. I think you could say one of my goals earlier in my career, I used to say my goal is to make the dinner table conversation. I don't care if it's because of something crazy I did in class or a comment or a joke or if it's something academic. Like if you make the dinner table conversation or just casual conversation with the parents, to me that's a win. You know, the kids had an enjoyable experience and memory that day. And they tend to tend to remember more academically if they enjoy being there. Yeah, and, and when you get to those parent-teacher conference nights and the parent comes in and says, oh, we hear about your class quite a bit that's usually a pretty good indication that yeah. you're making some inroads with it always students. makes you feel good yeah, definitely. as opposed to the parent who like they haven't really heard anything about your class or that's you know far down the schedule and regardless of all students kind of have favorite content areas whether some students gravitate more toward math or students that like to read and enjoy their English class but if you like you talked about if you can put that environment together in a way that you can connect with that student and they feel comfortable in there there's a level of organization where they know they're going to do something meaningful that day. That really does go a long way. Absolutely. 
So, you know, with you being at STEAM, one of the big parts of that that world with STEAM education is project-based learning, the PBL. Yes. So a lot of times I think and from with my background coming from the science end of things, you know, we think of PBL and we immediately think of what can we get some materials to work on building something, designing something, putting something together. But history doesn't always work out quite like that, even though there still are problem-solving opportunities, even though there still are opportunities to put together uh, projects that demonstrate the learning process, uh, what are some ways that you're able to take that concept of PBL or project-based learning uh, and have some success with that? Well, one of the things that actually we we're talking about today in TBT is um, I'm ELA. Also, I've taught language arts uh, many, many years. So that background comes into how I teach social studies. I, I teach the history standards to American history. Um, but a lot of what we do is research-based, critical thinking, reading and writing. And that comes into the project-based learning that we do. Um, for example, this year we had the kids doing an activism project. So instead of learning about somebody maybe who has changed and made a positive impact in the community, which we looked at, but I wanted them to live activism and understand what that means. So they had to pick their own topic. They had to research their topic. They had to develop questions and a survey and send it out to stakeholders about their topic. And they ranged anywhere from Black Lives Matter to littering in the community to vacant lots to should we have sidewalks going on this part across from Benson Stadium. You know, so there was all kinds of different um, topics the kids were interested in. And it was more genuine. And they did the research and sent out the surveys and developed the, the project from there. So I, I think sometimes, too, that activism is obviously something that is is prevalent today. We hear a lot about that societally. But a lot of times I think some kids might even associate activism with more of a social media presence or just like your your public What's your public message that you're putting out? And what causes are you passionate about? The way you describe it, though, is interesting to me just from a standpoint of getting a lot of those students, getting them to think about their local neighborhoods, their local communities, and how can I be a part of that and then do something positive in my local community where I live and what I'm, the community I'm a part of every day. And that, and that it, again, was some of the things that we talked about. What is your end product? How are you going to publish or put a product out there? Mm-hmm. And there were conversations about kids making TikTok videos that promoted their message, putting a video or a public service announcement on social media. And some did that. You know, there's even talk of of creating a podcast. So um, and it's funny. That's why I'm I'm excited to be a part of this, because I want to see how you you and Alan run this, because I'm trying to bring it down to the middle school level. Um, Last summer spent spent uh, some time filling out a a. grant information and end up getting two thousand dollars and i'm gonna try to try to bring that to the kids for social studies where that's awesome they get to pick their topic of interest it has to be historical Mm -hmm. but what do you want to talk about what do you want to be an expert on what do you want to write questions and and maybe do like a a pre-production type of meeting and interview on so um yeah, this is a great experience for me. <laughs> I think about, as you talk about the idea of some of these projects that the students did, when you talk about a podcast, the one thing that really stands out to me when you look at a STEAM project or a project-based learning opportunity, 
we're always looking for authentic experiences. You know, that's one of the that's one of the key words you're going to hear a lot. How can you how can you have authentic assessments, authentic opportunities to learn about content? Well, if the students are actually participating in a podcast, they are truly putting something out there for the world. If they're going to have, be part of a, a real podcast that's published on, you know, an RSS feed where people can access it where they find their podcast that's a pretty cool opportunity and instead of just you know you think about your traditional project with maybe three students standing up presenting just to their classmates that they yeah. know uh, you're really taking that a step further because now it's they worldwide to, yeah they have to it's think global. about this is this is going to be much more than just my teacher just the people that are in front of me and that really is that really is a nice experience for students um, you know the other thing too that that I'm kind of curious about how do you take care of as far as you, you look at there are certain standards that we have to cover we have tested areas uh, how do you how do you go through like a lesson plan situation when you're trying to get one of these project-based learning opportunities done because one of the things we know about middle school students is without good oversight from the teacher and without strict guidance uh, small things can take a long long time and unfortunately in education we're always short on time so how do you do that as far as the lesson planning well one of the things I picked the standard and do a little research on my own, kind of find, you know, give the kids a good start as far as resources. But what I did was Mondays and Fridays were like a complete shutdown for, for I'd say probably close to six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. I, I committed the quarter to it. Um, they then Mondays and Fridays knew they had that time. And then Tuesdays to Thursdays was more devoted just traditional instruction with those history standards mm -hmm. but there was a standard you know how to get involved in in your community and make a positive impact and be familiar with issues so that's the standard i build everything around um and yeah that's what yeah look at your standards what do you what can i do what kind of experience can i create that's a project or a problem to solve and they get to pick it it isn't me naming the problem you can frame a big idea but you don't necessarily write down every that's that's just a project you know they need to create the issue and and the blueprint of how to solve it mm -hmm. and i think one of the things that always stood out to me being a part of the staff here at steam is that there are a lot of teachers here who aren't afraid to take risks and maybe stretch things out a little bit you know as teachers we definitely have pressure on here's the content we have to cover we know assessments are coming there's accountability there's responsibility and, and all those things are important and justifiable i think but at the same time i think what steam has proven here in canton city is that with those projects if you can organize those well and kind of step out a little bit and, and take those on we've seen gains on test scores as well so it hasn't been like those two things that are you know opposites or not correlated to each other there's there's opportunities for students to learn in a different way and still perform well when it comes to the assessments absolutely and and there's no there really is no good blueprint for us teachers we're kind of just i mean a lot of us are jumping in and it's taking the courage to jump in and and get to it and say, okay, this is, I already know when I do activism next year, I know exactly what I'm going to do differently. I'm sure I'll do even more when I really sit down and think about it. But, I, you know, you got to commit to it. You got to be prepared for it to be chaotic and sloppy in your good days and bad days and learn from it. And so many teachers, because we don't have those extra days, we're, we're scared to relinquish that time, you know. Yeah. And I kind of feel now that I'm not ELA more social studies like I take that upon myself more and want to get better at it because yeah I don't have the OST ELA hanging over my head as right. much you know but I'm also thinking like how can I help 
my ELA teacher mm-hmm. next to me. More and I'm very the de- educational experience for the student. Absolutely. I'm very always thinking about, you know, and looking at that dad and say, hey, how can we help here and, and bring the experience, but also reinforce some of those ELA elements. Well, I think that's one of the things where your skill set really is beneficial to being part of a grade level team because when you've had all those years of experience in teaching writing and working in that language arts setting, uh, it makes it it makes it much easier to translate that over and then be able to use that in social studies and like you're talking about, be able to support that that ELA teacher and having the actual experience of having your students take the state test. Uh, understanding what those English language arts standards are about really makes it a lot easier to support the the colleague as opposed to when you have this building-wide initiative that we're going to work on writing in the content area and a teacher who's never really been in that situation and doesn't understand what it's all about to teach language arts. And that's that's absolutely how I feel. Like I feel like it has to be more organic, more natural, and I'm trying to, trying to bring that to social studies more. Um, we're doing a program this year called Visualizing and Verbalizing through uh, Nancy Bell. It's a research-based program. I've had success with it when I was at the private school, and, and also I taught at Belden one year with it, and kids did extremely well with it. But it, it just teaches kids um, concept imagery, like technique of instead of just decoding words, like what's the movie in your head? Mm-hmm. And it, you also put it with um, writing skills and with these structure words. So when they take a look at a picture, say it's a picture of the Boston Tea Party, you're teaching them 10 structure words. What's the background? What's the color? What's the shape? What's the size? So you're teaching them strategically how to free write is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So when they see an image and you tell them to write about it, they don't go, oh, I'm not sure what to do here, coach. Right. Um, what they're doing is right away, okay, I can talk about the size. And eventually they memorize and understand those structure words and they get right to it. And then you move on to, okay, now let's read a sentence. What image do you see in your head from the sentence? Let's talk about the size of that image. Let's, so you bring it to the, then you move to a paragraph. And before you know it, you're moving to a page. Mm-hmm. And you bring that concept imagery. Because so many of our kids struggle with decoding and concept imagery. And then, you know, or they can decode, but they just have no movie. So you're given those techniques and tactics. And it goes hand in hand with writing, which works out well with social studies. So I, I think really one of the things you <clears throat> talked about there that I think is awesome is just the idea of visualization. And I've noticed that teaching the sciences over the years that students a lot of times really, we might be explaining and expressing something that we can picture really clearly in our mind, but a student doesn't have that same picture. So these words have a lot less meaning when they can't picture, visualize, or associate that with something. Yep. And so when you talk about going through and actually step-by-step step breaking that down to a, a simple level mm-hmm. and then growing it, I mean, that's really, that's the essence of what we're, that's where we're trying to get to when we're, when we're teaching and when we're educating. I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind, I think about a basketball coaching setting. So if I want to, if I want a player to perform well in an open court, fast break setting, I've got to teach them some skills that they're going to be able to apply so that when they're making split second decisions, that they can fall back on that, that type of instruction that they've had. So if I want a team that's going to be good in like a, an unorganized, unnumbered transition setting going up and down the floor in basketball, we first start by working on two on ones, then we work on three on twos, and then pretty soon we build it up to five on five. And they've got they're getting practice at each step of the way, kind of building those skills. And I wonder now that you bring that up that if that's why I approach 
maybe how I plan and look at stuff from that foundational level. Like if you have to make a certain block, what's your first step? Not just, okay, drive, throw your shoulder into them and, and push, you know? Right. Like, so when you go to write, like you tell the kids to write an essay, you got to break it down. You tell the kids, you know, how long they have to write, how many words, you know, transition words, describers, adjectives, you know, you got to teach them those individual skills. And uh, you just say, write a thesis. Well, you got to practice and drill that thesis over and over and over. And when I did teach ELA, I remember like we would just spend days writing thesis and thesis about random topics, not a whole essay, just a thesis to be well. And you think about the value of doing that is that at least they're going to be able to focus on being on point and on topic with something that they're writing about. And if they can carry that skill over, think about like a state tested environment if you can actually put together a paragraph that has like a clear topic sentence, that's going to take you a long way to at least getting partial credit on that item, which a lot of our students we know struggle when you go through and you evaluate those scores and you look at how many written items end up with zeros. That's a huge skill for being able to, to function when you get maybe a question about a topic that you don't know a lot about, but you have some writing skills to at least get started with. Yeah, it's almost like you're teaching them a formula. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then they apply the formula. And so. then that's the key of the application process. Yeah. One other thing I just wanted to circle back to, you had mentioned uh, talking a little bit with the PBL, how you had these ideas from, from this year doing this uh, activism PBL, and you're going to come back to that. And you already know the things that you're going to change and improve next year. And during my time working here at STEAM and some of the projects that I did in the science, um, in the science area of science, I really think that that second and third run through a PBL really gives the students an opportunity just to take that learning even deeper because as the teacher, you see the areas where students maybe didn't have enough time to go as far as they wanted, some avenues that you hadn't thought of or students hadn't thought of that you could present students with some extra ideas. And I know there's a little bit of debate about that. Some teachers that in, in the world of STEM education think that you should really only do each PBL one time and you're always looking for things that are current. But as we've talked about in the past, being able to use a, a PBL just like a good lesson multiple times really gives you – think about the design process and the launch cycle. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the launch cycle, uh, a process of design thinking starting all the way from identifying what your problem area is and then uh, coming up with solutions, testing them out to the point where you get to a, a product or a prototype. Really in teaching, we use that process all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Think, thinking about an idea of, of where your lesson's going to start, um, putting it into practice with your with your classes. And unfortunately, those first couple classes that you teach it to, they are not the finished product. You're constantly refining it, developing it. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm really now thinking about the activism project. Um, and should I do it again? Yes, I should do it again. But to me as an ELA teacher, if you read a book, a certain book that you think the kids would love, and they just hate it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that book again. Right. You're going to look for a new book. Right. Um, and I think that would be the same way with, with uh, uh, PBL. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell that, all right, I got to totally change this, leave it go and try something new. But to me, I think there's some really good, solid um, meat and potatoes to the to activism project. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some things to make it better. I'm already thinking about next year. Um, now, it didn't fall on its face or I'd probably look elsewhere. So I think right. you got to kind of think both ways about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, 
when you look at teachers, there's really a wide variety of teaching styles, personalities, and some people tend to be really structured and really process oriented. Some people are kind of in that middle of the road where they're, they do have an element of structure, but they also have flexibility. And then there are some teachers who really do have a gift that they can get kids to work in an environment where things are much more wide open. But regardless of your style, the probably the toughest place you can be in is taking either a, a book, a project, or a lesson that involves something that kids are just not interested in yeah. and trying to drag them along through it. Because when you get into that setting, uh, that's especially at the middle school level, that's when you start to see like management issues, behaviors, and things like that pop up. Because if the kids aren't with you, that's really part of that launch cycle where you're taking it back a step. What other content can I use to teach this particular topic or standard? Yeah, and, and with the launch cycle is – I. The here the kids at Steam they learn the launch cycle from from fourth grade all the way up to eighth grade and it's something we just started last year or two and we're hoping you know keep growing those kids and keep them here and they become more independent more familiar with it well the teachers are in the same book mm-hmm. teachers are absolutely you know getting more independent with it and, and growing and and to me you think to your content area you teach in it takes two or three years to really build up just an immaculate strong content even if you're strong in your background yep. you're a great teacher you you know it takes two or three it, years it's funny you say that because i taught seventh grade science for 16 years and mm-hmm. so i went through actually two sets of standard changes during that time and i've that's the number you bring up three years is what i've always said to really master a grade level content yeah it's about three th- about three cycles of going through and, and kind of getting rid of the stuff that doesn't work adding new things to the parts that are thin and uh, you really do feel for a teacher we you know from time to time just based on needs you see teachers who have to yeah. go from grade level to grade level subject to subject and it really is is on you can take it as you said you can take a really good teacher but it's really kind of unrealistic to expect them to completely master all the nuances of that content area without having that that multi-year progression to be able to work through that. And that's what I got maybe, I'd say I have two PBLs that I'm still trying to improve. My goal is to have one per quarter. Mm-hmm. And I've, this is probably my third year really committed to it. This is the first year I've been more courageous about it and just kind of, all right, let's go with it. You know, let's let's learn from it. Let's commit to it. So, um, but yeah, it's it's going to take some time. I think when you talk about that PBL setting too, a lot of people have a misconception that, okay, in a, in a STEAM education setting, it's constant hands-on projects, constant building, constant working with materials. And even though there is a lot of that, there's no substitute for learning to read, learning to write, learning to communicate. And those things are all still taking place as well. And so when you mentioned having a goal of, of one project per quarter, that's a pretty good flow throughout the year. Every single day is not a project, just like in a science setting. Every single day is not a lab activity. Yeah, this right now, currently, the eighth grade team here, we're, we're trying to figure out, we, we want to read The Giver. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves that book, think we'll have success High with interest, kids. Yeah. High interest, yeah. So how do we build a PBL around this with our standards? And it, Honestly, we've had two TBTs just going back and forth, you know, looking at the standards like, how does this fit with science? How does this fit with math? I was on a database yesterday looking at research articles about how the giver dystopian society fits in with social studies standards. So it's not easy. It definitely takes some some front loading and, and you got to be comfortable um, with a little chaos as you unroll it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and one last thing just to finish up on PBL. Um, for maybe somebody who's just kind of getting into that 
style of learning and that type of learning. One of the things that you and I, we had an opportunity to do a PBL together the last year that I was in this building. And being that we worked on it together, making it a little bit interdisciplinary between, at that time, language arts and science. The Yeti mug. Yeah, yeah desi- designing the best possible insulation for a mug and then yes. how to market and sell it. Uh, and I think what really, and we didn't get a chance to give that a run back and do it and improve it and do it again, but what I think made it successful just the first time through is being able to work in a little bit smaller group setting, just you and I making all the decisions, really helped streamline that process and get it up off the ground. One of the things that I've noticed uh, just in my own experience is that if you have a really large group trying to collaborate on, like, let's say a whole grade level project uh, it really becomes difficult because yes. you've got so many ideas <laughs> and you've got so many different angles that it could go and so many different content areas. So I've seen projects never fully get up off the ground because there's just too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. So if someone were asking me, what's what's something I can do to ensure that my project's going to have a good chance for success? I would say keep it, uh, especially at the beginning, somewhat small and somewhat focused. And the smaller group that you're working in, the better chance you're going to have to keep it moving. I think that's perfect advice. Like you and I kind of had that conversation like, all right, we know we want to do this. Really not sure how to do this, but it's with only two cooks in the kitchen, like you said, it's going to be easier to move forward and adjust and make decisions what's best for the kids just between the two of us. And that's, that's good advice. If anybody, you know, is trying to get into the PBL thing, pick up one teacher you can work with a good colleague, you know, that's another content and jump into it. The other piece of advice I would give too, is look at your calendar, look at your schedule and you're like, okay, OST testing takes place in April. I got the whole month of May after OST testing. That is a great time to jump in and swim with PBL or something new, you know, that that you're trying to dabble with. That's what we did our Yeti design after the testing that year. Or right before Christmas break or whatever it may be. Just look at your calendar and say, okay, I want to do this and commit to this for this chunk of time. And you know, you, you got a little more wiggle room. All right. So uh, wrapping up kind of the idea of PBL and just one other thing I wanted to touch on with you real quick is that, um, you know, you mentioned just the motivation, finding materials in history that students are, are interested in, things that are going to engage them. You know, a lot of us looking back, we've all had um, great teaching um, activities that we've been through as students. We've sometimes probably been in situations where maybe the teaching wasn't so good. And unfortunately, history sometimes gets a little bit of that uh, rep as maybe one of the more boring classes, depending on how it's presented. How do you use, uh, for one thing, fictional literature, and then um, along with that kind of incorporating writing, how do you do that in a way that keeps the students engaged and interested? Uh, so we, I like to do days where it's like more textbook informational text and then always have a historical fiction novel um, that is parallel to it, but from um, a different perspective or point of view you should say maybe um if it's perspective of the different characters maybe the history book doesn't doesn't cover you know um that leads to a lot of conversation a lot of debate and a lot of interpretation from the students which Mm -hmm. keeps their interest and um i would just something that just popped into my mind so let's take for example you mentioned the american revolution which might be something that would be covered in a history class if you're looking at it just from the standpoint of of the factual timeline of here's the events that happen, the students don't really get that connection with any of those characters. But if you're reading a novel, which maybe is going to be like historical fiction where it's based on real events, but then maybe there's some liberties on what the characters, how they interact, what they're thinking. 
as you're talking about, it gives them a chance just to be able to maybe connect with those historical figures and then consider like how did they feel during some of these situations or what kind of thoughts might they have had, which is going to help them to connect you know, on a deeper level with the historical uh basically the, the different events that are occurring as opposed to just let, let's put these on a timeline and these events really don't mean much to me. Yeah. So for example, like, a, I mean, I'm always with history trying to throw it at them as many different ways as possible every day and see what sticks as far as that message, you know, that understanding. And for example, like um, we'll use the VMV, those structure words, they'll take a look at a picture of um, the national archives where the declaration said, so, you know, um, where they'll t- see a picture of that and they'll practice their VNV and then we'll be reading as a primary source the actual declaration, but then might watch the debate of John Adams arguing it from the John Adams series on HBO uh-huh. and then watch Hamilton and they have to do some research and critique of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Anytime the- you can use some, some type of... Uh- I don't want to say pop culture, but when you can use a theatrical performance like Hamilton, a clip from a movie that is historical, historically accurate, you're giving them more things. As you mentioned the visualization earlier, you're giving more things that help them to visualize these topics that you're talking about. Yeah, and the, the fact that they can put that movie together, um, and then we, we use the textbook two or three days and do Cornell notes based on, on, on what the textbook says. So. Um, that would be that would be one of my biggest things too to mention to parents if they were considering a STEAM school. We still take notes in the in the world of STEAM. There's still some. It's not yes. going to all be design, all be project based, and all no. be building. <laughs> we still have those. Some of those traditional academic activities still have value, and we still use them when they're appropriate. No, when they leave this class, I, I know they're heading to you know McKinley in early college. I want them to have a, a technique and tactic of of taking notes. It don't matter what the content is. They, they should know whether it's on a piece of paper or a Google Doc. Like, this is how you attack if a teacher is giving you information. Cornell Notes is an easy way to do that. Yep. Giving, giving them a strategy, and then they can then find ways to apply that. Yep. All right. So as we're wrapping up today, one of the things that we like to do here when we have a guest come on the show, uh, if we had a, a new teacher who was maybe looking for some advice as to developing their craft, how they're setting up their classroom, or maybe even a veteran teacher who's looking to just revamp the way that they're doing things, um, what type of advice would you give maybe for a new teacher or even a veteran teacher looking to kind of make a change and, and turn things in a different direction? Um, buy, you got to buy into yourself to, to important structures and systems. I think structures and systems so important. Um, so the kids have consistency. They have, they know what to expect. And the consistency also has to come with you. You can't be fired up one day and then monotone the next day. And, like, it, it's got to be an experience. It's got to be a, a bit of a performance. And, I mean, there's some days I leave here and I've been talking, you know, for so long. I really don't want to talk when I'm out here because – you know, left it all in the classroom that day. So same, same as leaving it out exactly. on the court or leaving it out on the field. It's yeah. it's got to be high energy. I think your energy. And I just had a student teacher this year, and that's the biggest thing. Um, he started his lessons very just, bleh, you know, the like where where's the hook? Where's the passion? Where's the energy? Like, the, how are they supposed to get excited if you're not excited? So. Um, to me, that's the biggest thing. Even even if it isn't your day and you're not feeling it, you you gotta you gotta overcome that. Mm-hmm. You gotta, 
you know, it's time to go. It's go time. Get on stage and do your thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just, you know, you make those athletic comparisons too. Just like when some nights you get out there and you don't have your best stuff on the field or on the court and you got to push through and find a way. And a lot of times in the classroom, it might be like that too, where maybe your mentality isn't quite there and uh, you got to find a way and grind through it and make it the best possible day for the students. But I do think that's interesting. Uh, just as you, you look at that in terms of a piece of advice, it's not really anything specific about lesson planning or anything like a, a specific strategy or a technique, but really just having that right mindset and really setting that environment so that you can uh, get all the students in there set up to be in a place where they can be successful. Well, you, you got If you facilitate the instruction more so, and they can count on you being friendly and res- respectful, but you're facilitating certain environments and, and instruction. And you just kind of want, especially at the eighth grade level, I'd like to see it mature and grow as the year goes. You know, I want to be more hands-off. I want to see them talking and debating and getting used to it. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a definitely always a work in progress. <laughs> you know that, so. Yep. Hey, just like students are always learning as teachers, that's that's one of the uh, things that's exciting about the profession is there's always new things to try, new things to learn, and, and ways to improve, and, and we definitely try to keep that mentality. Student-centered also is a def- definitely one thing I kind of think more like how, how they can keep the instruction going with their ideas. Um, not so much my instruction you know guided instruction the entire time like um that's easy to do and i think it's a trap we fall in so many times because it's a comfort level it's a comfort level yeah yeah and that's the skill of teaching traditional but you know i think the game's changing yeah and you know just to kind of finish up too on that idea of student-centered i think that students student-centered teaching really is a skill that is difficult to master because the students aren't going to be able to make a great learning experience on their own so that teacher has to be able to really kind of funnel them into the direction you want them to go and give them experiences and opportunities that help them to be able to take charge in a way where they can have some success and they can kind of direct the path that they're going and uh, it's it's definitely um, not an easy thing to do but when you do it right those classes are really a lot of fun for the teacher and the student both and, and hitting that home run at the beginning of the year too I think it, you got to really have your your best your best material at the beginning of the year yeah. to really get them to buy into you. And um, I do a lot of student-centered stuff. You know, it's like beginning of the year, they, um, so many of our kids have come to STEAM and they don't know how to play chess. So the first couple of days, is, it's all informational text. And we all we do is play chess. It has nothing to do with American history, but it's informational text, critical thinking, getting to know each other, uh-huh. you know, trying to teach each other. You, okay, you're the expert on the knight this day. You're the expert on the queen. you got to teach everybody how this piece works. Communication, and, teamwork. Yeah, and then we play chess for two days, and before you know it, like everybody kind of gets to know each other, and it's more laid back. So and we also had an argument about why we say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, um, how come we do it every day? in grade school and we never do it in middle school or you rarely do it in high school uh-huh. like, why does that change so they they said should we do that they developed a survey we took an attitude survey and then they debated it after they argued or after they researched it then they debated it and then we had to teach them how to debate because yeah. it was more of an argument at the beginning of the year yeah. but they've learned so yeah. um like i said student-centered things things that they they can be passionate or cling to yeah all right. Well, hey, I got to say it's been been really interesting kind of going through and just finding out a little bit more about how you set things up. 
uh, in the classroom, how you engage students, how you interact with students, and uh, also, too, being in a, a history setting, uh, working in a STEAM school and, and a project-based learning environment, really some great stuff there as far, as far as how you can have success with some of those things. So thanks for being on today. I appreciate the time. This was great. Thank you. So this, begin, this brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed our conversation with Corey Nist today. Make sure you check out the description for links uh, to some of the resources and things that we've talked about today in the podcast. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find previous episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.